I want to read for us from Ephesians chapter 2. You can follow along on the screen. Ephesians chapter 2, I'll read verses 14 through 22. I'd encourage you to get context for that, though, by reading uh, the rest of Ephesians chapter 2, maybe today or maybe the whole letter of Ephesians. Chapter 2, verse 14, for he himself, he's speaking of Jesus now, is our peace, who has made the two one, Jews and Gentiles, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man, out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. We're going to get to that passage in a couple minutes. But I want to begin somewhere else. I want to begin by thinking about the fall And I want to make sure that you know what I mean by that. The fall is an expression used by theologians and Bible students to describe what happened when the first humans sinned. So think Garden of Eden, forbidden fruit, sin, blame, curse, trouble. Theologians call the result of that first sin the fall, the fall of man or of humankind. Sometimes when we talk about the fall, our mental image is of a slip at the bottom of the basement stairs. I mean, we know that that can be pretty debilitating, but it's just a step or two. A little physical therapy will probably put us right, and if not, we can always go and see the surgeon. But when we think of the fall of Adam, Adam, by the way, means human, the human fall. When we think of the fall of Adam, don't think of grandma's fall on the basement steps. Think of Humpty Dumpty's great fall. Or better yet, think of Brad Guy. Brad's an Australian who got a big surprise when he turned 21 years old. Because he is a a thrill seeker at heart, his parents gave him a 14,000-foot skydiving experience for his birthday. And since he'd never done it before, he went tandem with a veteran instructor, and he was all geeked to do this. The two of them jumped out of an airplane and then went hurtling towards the earth. When they reach, and and Brad feels like he's flying. He's Superman. This is just so cool. When they reach 4,000 feet, the instructor, who is looking at his altimeter, pulls the cord. He, He deploys the chute, and a moment later in his headset, Brad hears his instructor swear. Now, when you're falling from a height of over two miles at 120 miles an hour, that is not what you want to hear in your ear. When the primary chute opened, it tore, and it sent the skydivers into this plummeting spiral. 
Brad asked the instructor, are we going to die? And the instructor said, I don't know. Then the instructor pulled the cord on the backup chute, but it got tangled in the primary chute, and the two men continued their wild spiral toward Earth. The instructor hit the ground first, and Brad landed on him, and miraculously, both of them survived from 14,000 feet. But they were horribly broken up and continue to suffer the pain and the mental anguish of that fall to this day, and probably will their entire lives. When you think of the fall of humanity, don't think of Grandma on the basement steps. Think of Brad at 14,000 feet. The fall of Adam shattered us. It broke our relationship with God and with each other. It damaged our ability to think. It got our mind and our will and our emotions all out of order. We suffer from the consequences of the fall every single day. Much of what we do and think and desire, we do and think and desire as a result of the fall. And it's not just us who suffer. It's all of creation. If next time you watch the news or hear about some natural or human-instigated disaster, you think it's not supposed to be this way, you're right. When man fell, he not only shattered himself, he broke the world. It's damaged. It's under a curse. The fall caused all kinds of problems. The worst of which is that humans cannot relate to God as they were meant to, as they did before the fall. Now, you may be thinking, well, why should eating an apple, by the way, the Bible doesn't say it's an apple, but why should eating a fruit cause all this trouble? It doesn't seem fair that so much hardship should result from one man's mistake. Well, you need to know that what the humans did was not just a mistake. It wasn't merely a bad choice. It was a rebellion. It was a takeover. That's why C.S. Lewis said, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He's a rebel who must lay down his arms. When we read the story of the beginning, that's what the word Genesis means. When we read the story of the beginning, we find God busy bringing order out of disorder. You remember the story? On the first day of his work, he made light, and he separated it from darkness, and he called the light day and the darkness night. And in so doing, he made time. And he saw it was good. That's the refrain throughout the story. And he saw it was good. On the second day of his work, he separated the waters below from those above. And he called the expanse above sky. On the third day, he divided the waters below by causing dry ground to appear. And he named the dry ground land or earth and the water sea. And just as on day one, he saw that it was good. Then he made vegetation, seed-bearing plants that would reproduce, and that was good too. On the fourth day, he placed lights in the sky, the sun, the moon, the stars. And in so doing, he gave us seasons, months, and years. And he saw that was good. On the fifth day, he filled the sea with creatures and filled the sky with birds. And he saw it was good. And he blessed the sea creatures and he blessed the birds to reproduce and fill the earth. On the sixth day, he made land creatures. All kinds. Cattle and sheep and horses and monkeys and snakes and giraffes and squirrels and dogs. Every kind of creature that you can think of. And he saw that was good. And then he made a human. 
And when he made the human, he said it was very good. Then on the seventh day, God rested. When we read that story, we're lot, and it's this is foundational to everything else that happens in Scripture. It's such an important story to read. When we read that story, we're liable to ask questions of it that have, that an early reader would never have asked. We approach the story as though it were a defense, a defense of a six-day supernatural creation. We think that it was written as proof that the world didn't come into existence on its own. That may be how we read it today. That's not how the author wrote it. He wasn't trying to prove a supernatural creation. He didn't have to. When Genesis was written, no one doubted that the universe was divinely created. The question was not, did God create the world or did it come into being on its own? The question was, which God created the world? The Egyptians credited the creation of the world to several of their gods. The Babylonians had Apsu and Tiamat. They thought they brought the earth into being. And there are plenty of creation stories to choose from just in the lands around the Mediterranean. But the Bible takes for granted that Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, created the world. Now, before we go further, we need to consider the word translated created. It always and only takes God as its subject. This word never refers to the creative act of any human being. God stands alone as the creator. We should also note that this word, which is used rather often in Scripture, something like 30 times, is elsewhere never used of creating matter. Rather, it's used in regard to function. It has the idea of getting things up and running. Now, before you take that information and jump to the conclusion that God didn't create matter, that it was already here, that he just arranged it through some system, you need to remember that other passages of Scripture, like Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1, do teach that God created it. He created everything. But Genesis is more interested in what he made everything for. In Genesis 1, God seems to be getting his world up and running for a purpose. But what purpose? If you were living back in the time of Moses and were privileged to read Genesis 1, you'd be a priest if you were literate like that. But if you were privileged to read Genesis 1, you would probably not think about it the way we do. Questions about the relationship between religion and science, they wouldn't even enter your mind. You wouldn't wonder about day-age theories or about evolution, but you would say, oh, I see what's going on here. The creator God is making himself a temple. In ancient times, when a temple was built and supplied and was ready to function as a temple, there would be seven days of dedication. So when Solomon dedicated the first temple, we read that he and all Israel celebrated it before the Lord our God for seven days and seven days more. They were so excited, they celebrated a second seven-day dedication. In other near ancient Eastern literature, near Eastern literature, we find the same seven-day period again and again for the dedication of a temple. That's why an early reader coming on this passage would say, ah, this God is setting up a temple. And when he came to chapter 2 and read that Adam was to work the garden and take care of it, that's verse 15, 
the hypothesis would have been confirmed. Without exception, when those two words are used together everywhere else in the Old Testament, they mean to serve and to guard and are most frequently used over and over again of the priest serving God in his temple and guarding it from the entrance of any unclean thing. This is temple language in Genesis 1 and 2. When Genesis 2 tells us that God finished all the work he had been doing and on the seventh day he rested, we need to realize he wasn't taking a nap. He was taking his place. His place in the temple he had built. Eden was the place that heaven and earth met. The holy of holies where the humans could meet and worship their creator. And God's plan was to extend his temple until it filled the whole earth. So he charged the humans to do just that, to fill the earth, the earth that was meant to be his temple. But the humans, who were God's image bearers and the priests in his temple, did the unthinkable. They tried to take God's place. They wanted to be the gods of this glorious temple. You remember the temptation to which they succumbed? Eat of the fruit, and you will be like God. The humans who were made to worship chose rather to become objects of worship, gods. They imagined they could take God's temple as their own, no longer mere servants of the God of the temple, but peers, maybe even rivals. It was with the words, you will be like God, ringing in their ears, that they succumbed to the temptation and ate the fruit. That was not a mistake. It was a rebellion. And that rebellion caused a fall, a Brad guy fall from the sky, crash and burn kind of fall. Humanity survived, but we're not the same. A part of us died that day. That fall shattered the image of God in us. Instead of his children, we became his usurpers. Instead of his worshipers, we became self-worshippers. The temple that we call earth became a place of thorns and thistles, of water shortages and air pollution and hurricanes and tornadoes. The happy place for meeting God became the tragic place that we lost ourselves. Now, here's the good news. God did not give up on his plan. How do we know that? Because he says it over and over again over the next thousand years. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Everywhere will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Remember how the glory of the Lord came down on the temple when Solomon dedicated it? That's going to happen in all the earth. The day is coming when people will once again know God and communicate with him. The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. That's what the prophet Isaiah told us. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. That was God's promise. He had not given up on his plan, and he still hasn't. How would God make all this happen? He would make it happen by establishing a new covenant with humankind. Under that covenant, God would return humans to their rightful place. They will be God's people, not his peers, not his rivals. They will be God's people, and God would take his rightful place, and God will be their God. But a covenant means nothing unless it's ratified. 
and to ratify a covenant throughout the ancient world and throughout the scriptures. To ratify a covenant, there must always be a sacrifice. Do you remember what Jesus said on the eve of the crucifixion? This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. It was his sacrifice that ratified the covenant, the plan to lift us up after the fall, to restore the divine image in us, to reestablish fellowship between humans and God, to make the world once again into a temple. It all hinged on Jesus from the very beginning. He lifts up the fallen, restores the broken, reconciles the alienated, and becomes the mediator between God and humans. Through him, the whole earth will again become God's temple. And he's the holy of holies, the meeting place between God and humans. And that brings us to our New Testament text in Ephesians 2. The fall, see, it not only resulted in the alienation of humans from God, but in the alienation of humans from each other. You can read about it in the paper every day. But through his death, Christ brought the most divided people, Jews and Gentiles, together and reconciled both to God. Look at verse 18. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Access to the Father by the Spirit, that's worship language. Do you see what's happening? Through Jesus, the restoration that God promised has begun through what he's done, and even more, through who he is, through his person, humans can again meet with God. What the first Adam threw away, the second Adam, Jesus, has recovered. The first Adam made us a race of usurpers. The second Adam, verse 19, makes us God's people and members of his household. The first Adam made us sinners. The second Adam makes us saints. Because of the first Adam, we were lost. Because of the second Adam, we are found. We find our place when we find him. Or when he finds us. There's a wonderful scene in J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Almost at the end, Sam, the simple hero of the story, awakes from a coma-like state to find that all the horror of death and destruction is past. The rebellion and the 10,000 evils that accompanied it are over. To his amazement, he finds his dear friends alive and well, and he says, is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? Once we see what God has done and is doing through Jesus, we might be moved to ask the same question. Is everything sad going to come untrue? The rebellion will be put down. The lowly will be raised up. Our humpty dumpty lives will be put back together again. Even creation itself will be healed of its deep wounds. And heaven and earth will again be joined. I saw a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven like a bride beautifully adorned for her husband. Most of that is at least partially future. But there's more. We are currently 
under construction. We are even now being built into something great. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Just as every stone in an ancient building related in some way to the cornerstone. And it anchored all the other stones in their places. So we are related to Christ. Take away the cornerstone and the building eventually falls. Take away Christ from the church, from the local church, from our church, and it too will fall. You can have charity events and songs and great musicianship and Bibles and Bible studies and teachers and even renowned scholars. But if you don't have Jesus, you don't have a church. We, the church of Jesus Christ, are being built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, but being built into what? That's the question. What is this great purpose God has in mind for us? Go back to creation and ask what God was doing then. He was building a temple in which he and humans could meet and know each other and be known by each other. God's purpose hasn't changed. He's still building a temple, not of dead stone, but of living people. Verse 21, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. See what's happening? God's plan is to make his people the entryway into his presence. In ancient times, people went to Solomon's temple to encounter God. Now they come to us, or we go to them. What a privilege, and what a responsibility. That's why Paul tells the Corinthians, we are the temple of the living God. And God has said, I will live with them. Talking about us. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. This is all temple talk. He goes on in chapter 7. Since we have these promises, that we will be his temple, and he will live among us. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. The idea is that a temple must be pure. And we are his temple. God intends to meet the world in his people, wherever they are. I think the plan in Eden was to extend its borders around the earth. Now God's plan is to extend his people throughout all the earth. He wants to reveal himself through you, to your neighbor, your family member, the server at the restaurant, the mechanic at the garage. You and I individually, and even more importantly, you and I corporately become the meeting place between heaven and earth, between God and people. We are, verse 22, being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Wow. We are the meeting place. Jesus Christ is the holy of holies. Lots of things happen in a temple. Go back to your Old Testament and read about the building of Solomon's temple and all the things that went with it. 
But you know what's central to temple life? Worship. In the Christian life, worship is critically important. To belong to Christ is to be a worshiper. Worship shapes us. Worship heals us. Worship makes us whole. Worship also orients us to the world around us. When we don't worship God, we fall right where Adam fell, into self-worship and fear and decline That's why the first promise we make in our church covenant is to exalt God in worship. Worship's not something that you go to on Sundays or go to occasionally. It's something you do. And we can learn to do it all the time. Worship's a verb, as Robert Weber reminded us. Learning to worship is to a Christian what learning to fly is to a bird. But too many Christians never leave the nest. They never learn to worship. Next week, we're going to get practical about the act of worship. If worship is so important to our well-being and to the world around us, and it is, we need to learn everything we can that will make us better worshipers. And what we learn, I think, might surprise us. All right, let's pray. God, we get caught up in the moment in the news. And we see what's happening in the world around us and we think everything's going to pot. And we forget that you have a plan. And that we're part of that plan. Lord, help us to remember and make us into people who are your worshipers and to people who extend your presence to others. Lord, fulfill your plan. For Jesus' sake, amen.